0: Well, good morning, everybody. Don and Teresa are taking a well-deserved rest, uh, which is actually kind of the subject of my talk today. So uh, they uh, asked me to speak here. And so I'm going to share today. And um, I'm going to share on Psalm 23. And uh, I'd kind of planned what what I was going to do. I kind of had the outline a little bit, and then my wife suggested to me that I teach on Psalm 23. Then I thought about it and I prayed about it. I thought, you know, I'm going to do it. And so I kind of switched gears a little bit. So thank you, Rose, for suggesting that. And uh, anyways, uh, we all probably know Psalm 23. It's, I think, the most famous psalm and uh, it's about the good shepherd. And as I was studying this, I've I've never looked at, when you teach something, you you look at it uh, closer than you ever have before. And I was just seeing things in here that were, uh, I thought, really amazing as I looked really close. And uh, I started seeing that really what what Psalm 23 conveys to us is the peace and the relationship that we can have with God. And this is the thing that uh, David was reflecting on. And it's a covenant relationship, and we'll see covenant in there. And it's really the shalom of the Old Testament is what this book conveys to us. And the definition for shalom, it's really a big word. It's not just peace. It actually encompasses a lot. And it means peace. It means harmony. It means wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. And if you remember, Jesus uh, said he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. And really, this is what he was speaking of. He was speaking of shalom. And uh, the psalm, and shalom both really have to do with rest they have to do with feeding they have to do with protection guidance relationship and satisfaction and we're gonna learn about that today in this psalm and when Jesus said that he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly that word in Greek is actually parasos parasos and the word means in Greek it means superabundant, the sense of beyond in quantity, superior in quality, excessive, uh, exceedingly, abundantly above, more abundantly, advantage, very highly, beyond measure, more superfluous. So those are the kinds of words that uh, that Greek word abundant or perisos uh, conveys to us, and I think that's what this this psalm is describing to us as well. This uh, life that Psalm 23 is conveying to us was real for David, but it was also prophetic, I believe, for us in the church. He experienced it then, we can experience it now, and it's also going to be carried into eternal re- eternity, because really what it's describing is, in a lot of ways, it's describing eternal life. Psalm 22, the, 20, the psalm before this one, is the great Calvary prophecy. It, it Is the one that Jesus quoted from when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it has many other details about what happened to Jesus. And it's very fitting because without Psalm 22, we can't have Psalm 23, you know. Uh, Psalm 23 is the fruit of Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 22. With Jesus' work and his death and resurrection, that brings us the ability to have all the stuff that David talks about here. And David was called the shepherd king. And so he knew what it was like to be a shepherd. And David's life reflected in so many ways Jesus. But, uh, Jesus was the son of David. He was, he was a, a descendant of David. And uh, what's interesting is the, the Jewish rabbis and teachers, they saw that the Messiah, when he came, was going to have these two kind of characteristics. And they described it by calling him the Messiah Ben David and the Messiah Ben Joseph. And that meant the Messiah son of David, the Messiah son of Joseph, in the character of David, and in the character of Joseph. And David was a, a conquering king, and he was a shepherd. you know. And uh, Joseph was uh, a, a suffering servant. And they could see those two things, and they, they were confu- there was different theories about it. They thought, is there one Messiah but two different comings, or is it two different messiahs? So there was kind of a mystery around that. Anyway, uh, this psalm, I was thinking about it, and I thought, wow, how many people has this psalm comforted over 2,000 years, or longer than that, more than 2,000, because it was written hundreds of years before Christ, but how many people has this psalm comforted? And I was just pondering that, and then I found a quote from Charles Spurgeon, I thought, wow, that's really good, and here's what he said about it. He said, it has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy of the world, it has remanded to their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has comforted the noble host of the poor. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the heart of the sick, of captives and dungeons, of widows and their pinching griefs, of orphans and their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier, as it was read to them, ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. And, like Peter's angel, led him forth in imagination and sung him back to his home again. It has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master and consoled those whom dying he left behind mourning. Not so much that he was gone as because they were left behind and could not go too. The thing about this psalm is It's exclusive. It's only for you if Jesus is your shepherd. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus is not the shepherd of all humanity. That is something that is partly up to you. It's a choice. And the invitation is sent out to everybody. So let's read Psalm 23, and then we'll get into it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down on green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Familiar words. You know, when I read this, I thought, I can just feel David, older in life, reflecting across the course of his life with just deep satisfaction saying these things, these revelations, these realizations that he's come to and these understandings of how God works as a shepherd. And he was just just in great joy and peace saying these things. Now, he, as we know, David was a shepherd before the Lord anointed him as the king. So he knew all the patterns of being a shepherd. But scripture also calls God a shepherd as early as the book of Genesis. And David would have known that too because every king was instructed in the Torah to write a copy of the Torah, to literally write a copy of it. And then every day of their life, they were supposed to read that so they would no proper fear of the Lord. And David did that. And in Genesis 49, 22 to 24, when Joseph is ready to die, he's prophesying over his sons, the, the 12 tribes. And he's prophesying over Joseph, and he says this. He says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him, and they shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. So David knew that, that he was a shepherd. And David saw the patterns. And here's the thing, too. Your sheep. I'm a sheep. Jesus called us, calls us sheep. Actually, Scripture calls all of humanity sheep, too. And... You know, God is shepherding his flock all over scripture. It's just all over scripture you see metaphors for God working with people as though he's a shepherd and people are a flock. Well, what's interesting is God is called the shepherd in Genesis, but then we know Jesus is also called the good shepherd in the New Testament. He calls himself that. In John 10, 11 through 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks in the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. So if you're a sheep of Jesus, he knows you, and you know him. And then it says, I shall not want, which basically means to lack. And there's kind of a Silly story. When I was a kid, we'd go visit my grandparents who lived in west central Minnesota in a little town called Cyrus. And I remember walking through the cemetery one time with some other kids there. And I saw one of the gravestones, and it had engraved on it. I didn't know the Bible very much then. And it said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I remember thinking, no way. This person for sure is not in heaven. On their gravestone, they say, I don't want the Lord. I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, And I didn't understand it, but I just thought, what kind of a person would ever say that and put it on their gravestone? Well, I misunderstood that. It was a very good thing to put on your, your gravestone, actually. So I shall not lack. Well, here's the thing. Uh, depends on how you look at it, because we may temporarily lack things. David wasn't necessarily talking about physical prosperity here, although that can happen. And so as we go, get into the psalm more, we'll see, really, what what is he talking about here? What is this? Uh, not wanting that he's talking about. If you remember Israel in the wilderness, they, God delivered them from Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, got to the other side, big celebration, then they start going through the wilderness, and immediately they realize, hey, we don't have very much water. And so that soon went from, we don't have water, to complaining and strong concern, and it was a big deal. And so for a few days, they didn't have water, and then God eventually provided it for them, but not right away. He was testing them, and sometimes we need to be patient. There are going to be times in our life where we're not going to have as much as we want, but God will provide for us. And then if you look at uh, Paul as well, in Philippians 4.12, he said, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content, in in every in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So he said he was in want, but he's learned the secret of contentment. And that's really what this psalm was talking about. The secret of contentment. contentment is the relationship that you have with the Lord and the trust and the confidence that you have in the midst of those things that may be not going so well. So really, it's about relationship it's about soul peace soul shalom that this psalm is really talking about now jesus did say that god would provide for us as our good shepherd uh, in matthew 6:25 to 34 jesus said for this reason i say to you do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink nor for your body as what you will put on it is not life more than food and the body more than clothing Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, "What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing?" For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then, in Luke twelve thirty-two, it's the same passage. Jesus adds. Do not be afraid, little flock, he says to them, for your father has pleased been pleased to give you the kingdom. So there's Jesus the shepherd and he's calling his disciples his little flock. So there again we're seeing the, the good shepherd and the sheep paradigm. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. I read this book for the first time. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23, as I was preparing for this message, and It's really good. I suggest reading it. Uh, It's by Philip Keller. I got it on Amazon. Really good book. And again, we are sheep. Jesus called us sheep. And see, the thing about being sheep is that it's not really a positive thing. The qualities of being a sheep are defenseless, dependent, mass or herd mentality, fearful, timid, stubborn, stupid, And perverse. And this is coming from a guy who raised sheep for eight years. So he knows the ins and outs. They also require more attention and care than any other class of livestock. And lie down in green pastures. In order for sheep to lay down in anywhere, four conditions have to be met. They have to have no fear. They have to have uh, no friction with the other sheep. There can't be pests like flies and parasites, and they can't be hungry. If those four conditions are met, you'll see the sheep lay down. What's really cool is in the New Testament, you see Jesus as the Good Shepherd play out for us this part of this psalm in the feeding of the 5,000. The scripture gives us the little details and we see the connection right there with this psalm. It's really neat, and I'm just gonna read this to you here. Mark 6, 30 to 43. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not have any chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went by themselves to a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And in Matthew, it says, he healed them here. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. They said, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them all to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass, it specifically says. And the word for sit in Greek also means lay down. So you could say, to have the people lay down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups in hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. So you see the shepherd, you see the sheep, you see the healing, you see the feeding, you see the laying down in the green grass, and they're all satisfied. So it's just, a, it's, just it's in there, but you've got to know Psalm 23 to be able to notice that, you know. And scripture calls God himself, in the Old Testament, our pasture. In, a, in kind of a sad part of scripture here, it's in Jeremiah 57, it says, whoever found them, his people, devoured them. Their enemies said, we're not guilty, for they sinned against the Lord. Their verdant pasture, the Lord, their, the hope of their ancestors. So, God is called their verdant pasture, which means green, their green pasture. That's who God was for his people. And then this theme of God being our food has to do with our soul and our spirit feeding on the Lord and being satisfied. And Jesus said to us in John 6:51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That would bring a Jewish reader back to the manna in the desert. And there's something that was kind of occurring to me here that I have found in my own walk with the Lord that the morning, it, there's something special about it, to have your quiet time in the morning. I'm not saying you have to do this, but, but I do believe the scripture teaches there's something special available for you in the morning, if that's when you want to seek the Lord. Because when you think about it, Jesus said he's the true bread from come, that came from heaven. And then he prayed, give us this day our daily bread. It's kind of funny because Jesus was basically saying, give me to them each day. And in Exodus 16, 21, when talking about the manna, here's what it says. It says, each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. I know for me, sometimes I can't do it in the morning, do it later. But there's just something special about it. And it kind of, that specialness kind of melts away uh, Honestly for me and then there's something else in proverbs and wisdom is speaking in proverbs 8:17. It says I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me so It means early, but it really what it's the emphasis is earnestly, you know to seek earnestly But I do think there's a little hint in there about the morning too He leads me beside quiet waters When I was a child into my teen years, we had a cabin in Northwest Wisconsin. And some of the most wonderful memories I have of nature happened up there. I would get up early in the morning. My parents and brother would be sleeping. And I'd get up before sunrise just about every time we were up there. And I would go fishing. And I just remember, now sometimes it was windy and sometimes it wasn't very nice. But there was a lot of times where I'd go out. The lake was like glass. It was just beautiful silence. There'd be like mist, I mean, the fog kind of rising up off the lake. Occasionally I would hear a loon, and it was peace personified. And I know many of you have seen that. And really, scripture uses water to describe peace, it also uses water to describe trouble, turbulent water. And there is a prophecy that talks about water representing what's going to be happening in the, in the future with the knowledge of the Lord. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. During the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, this earth is going to be so full of the knowledge and glory of God, it's going to be like the ocean covering covering the earth. And one thing I like to see, too, is whenever I'm looking at water bodies, just the little sparkles and glimmers of light coming off of the water as it's lightly moving. And to me, it's just like, I just sit and look at that, so peaceful. And then... Jesus speaking of water said in John 7 38 whoever believes in me as the scripture has said Streams of living water will flow from within him So if you have the spirit later It says this was the spirit spoke of the spirit that was later to be given to those who believed in him The spirit is this water this peace that can come up from us and we can literally have drinks as often as we want and then This is so awesome when I think about the future. Revelation 22, 1 through 3, as things are going to wrap up for eternity, this is what was shown to John. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will be there any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Imagine what that's going to be like, seeing that water flowing from the throne of God. I mean, it's unimaginable. And again, we're dealing with the Spirit really is the water. The Spirit is the peace that we get from the Lord. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty-five through 27, all this I've spoken, while still with you but the advocate the holy spirit who the father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything i've sent to you peace i leave with you my peace i give to you i do not give it as the world gives do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid so jesus said i'm sending the holy spirit my peace i give to you so it's what he's saying is the spirit's going to be the peace and then he said something else, though. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. The truth is, we can take our eyes off, and we can let our hearts be troubled. It's a battle. I battle with it, too. you know. But, I'm, but we need to continue to refocus and re- bring our, our eyes back to the Lord. And again, this all is for people if Jesus is your shepherd. This peace won't come to you unless he is your shepherd. He restores my soul. Really, the word restore means to turn back. And you picture someone who's going away, and it turns back your soul. It brings you back to walking toward the Lord instead of away. And when you do that, you get restored. You get remade. You get rebuilt. Now, the author of this book shared a very interesting uh, uh, interpretation of this in light of sheep. and. What happens to sheep is they become what's called cast down. If you're a shepherd, you know what cast down means. Sheep will fall, or they will get stuck on their back, and it's a life-threatening condition where they can't. It's like a turtle. They can't get turned over again. And I'm just going to read to you in here what he says about that situation. It's not only shepherd who keeps a sharp eye for a cast sheep, but also the predators. Buzzards, vultures, dogs, coyotes, and cougars all know that a cast sheep is easy prey and death is not far off. This knowledge that any cast sheep is helpless, close to death, and vulnerable to attack makes the whole problem of a cast sheep serious for the manager. Nothing seems to so arouse his constant care and diligent attention to the flock as the fact that even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and become a casualty, as it is often the fat sheep that are the most easily cast. The way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or, long-haired, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side to stretch or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it's quite impossible for it to regain its feet. As it lies there struggling, gases begin to build up in the rumen. All these expand. As these expand, they tend to retard and cut off blood flow and circulation to the extremities of the body, especially the legs. If the weather is very hot and sunny, a cash sheep can die in a few hours. If it's cool and cloudy and rainy, it may survive in the position for several days. During my own years as a keeper of sheep, perhaps some of the most poignant memories are wrapped around the commingled anxiety of keeping account of my flock and repeatedly saving and restoring cash sheep. It's not easy to convey on paper the sense of this ever-present danger. Often, I would go out early and merely cast an eye across the sky. If I saw black-winged buzzards circling overhead in their long, slowing spirals, anxiety would grip me. Leaving everything else, I would immediately go into the rough, wild pastures and count the flock to make sure everyone was well and fit and able to be on its feet. This is part of the pageantry and drama depicted for us in the magnificent story of the ninety and nine sheep with one going astray. There is the sheep's deep concern, his agonizing search, his longing to find the missing one, and his delight in restoring it, not only to its feet, but also to the flock as well as to himself. Again and again, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. Then, more often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. At once, I would start to run towards it, hurrying as fast as I could, for every minute was critical. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy, fear that it might be too late, joy that it was found at all. As soon as I reached the cast ewe, my first impulse was to pick it up. Tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the rumen. If she'd been down for long, I would lift, I would have to lift her on her feet. Then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore the circulation to her legs. This often took quite a little time. When the sheep started to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggering, and collapsed in a heap once more. All the time I worked in the cast sheep, I would talk to it gently. When are you going to learn to stand in your own feet? I'm so glad I found you in time, you rascal. Little by little, the sheep would gain its equal, regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely. By and by, it would dash away to rejoin the others, set free from its fears and frustrations, given another chance to live a little longer. All of this pageantry is conveyed to my heart and mind when I repeat the simple statement, he restores my soul. So you can see with sheep, they have this uh, tendency to get cast, and we do, too, in various forms, in various ways, various severity levels. You know, David himself, who wrote the psalm, got cast many times. As you read the troubles he had and the sins he had, it, it wasn't all sin, but sometimes he got separated from his family and tragedies and things like that. I mean, he had uh, Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. He killed Uriah, her husband. But yet the scripture says he was a man after God's own heart. And this has to do with one ingredient in that is that he got back up again and he repented and he turned back to the Lord. And that's how we should be too. His Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, righteous man or woman, but gets back up again and goes to the Lord, you know. All of humanity is in this position of being cast, really, because Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to seek and save what was lost, and that's the case of all humanity. You know, I don't know if you saw this, but a few years ago, I saw an article about a sheep that was found in Australia (coughs) that had been lost for five or six years. And it it was amazing. It was the largest fleece that they'd ever seen that had grown onto a sheep. And it's, uh, I got a slide here. Here it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's really pathetic, but I'm gonna read this short little report about it. This was in the Washington Post. A hiker walking the Australian bush outside Canberra on Wednesday spotted something very strange. Against a backdrop of green grasses and brown shrubs stood a giant globe of white, or gray, actually, <laughs> if, as if it was a cloud that had fallen from the heavens or a cotton ball that had taken steroids. It was fluffy and furry and almost as big as a Mini Cooper. And it was munching. It was a sheep. Startled by the size of the animal the fear, uh, and fearing he wouldn't survive the uncu- un- upcoming Australian summer, the hiker alerted authorities. Help, tweeted Tammy Vendangi from the Royal Society of the Prevention for Cruelty of Animals in Australia. The RSPCA needs help from a shearer immediately to hopefully save this sheep we just rescued. Chris, as the sheep's discoverer named him, was in serious trouble. In fact, it was a minor miracle that the oversized Merino sheep had made it this far. From the absurd look of him, Chris had wandered away from his flock five or six years ago. He'd apparently been living on his own in the bush ever since. All the while, his wool had grown to unprecedented proportions. While humorous, the hairy situation was potentially deadly. Chris could barely see or walk. He was at high risk of developing nasty skin parasites. And like a man in a fat suit, if Chris fell over, he'd be unable to get back up to be cast, exposing him to foxes, dingoes, or starvation. They took 90 pounds of wool off of that one sheep. And there's another angle. And then, so I found in the the same section of pictures, the same sheep after he was shorn was with a man. And this is the picture. And I thought, what? I thought, that guy looks like the stereotypical picture of the Lord, you know? (laughs) And I thought. Wow, how fitting, you know, that it's a lost sheep gets fixed, brought back to the Lord, the shepherd, you know, and that can happen to us too. And the thing about that fleece, you know, that's really a picture of the world. It's a picture of the accumulation that we get. And that, this guy said, it gets full of all kinds of gunk, you know, you name it, it's in that fur, in that wool. And uh, thorns and thistles and plants and dirt and you know and et cetera, et cetera, are in that. And that happens to us. And that burden, that ninety pound burden that that sheep was carrying around, well, that's what Jesus talked about. You know, he said in Matthew 11:28 to 30, he said, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls." my yoke is easy my burden is light so that's the thing too even if the even if our fleece isn't that long you know our fleece gets dirty our fleece does we got we have to keep coming to the lord in prayer and in seeking and talking to him and serving him and he will shear that for us he'll keep it down to the right level but if we wander away that's what can happen he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake the job of a shepherd is to provide for, protect, and guide. And one thing that's really interesting that I didn't realize was, uh, is that shepherds, will, what they'll do is they'll go ahead of the sheep, they will look at the area ahead of them, and they'll determine if it's safe. Sometimes there's poisonous plants. Sometimes there's no water. Sometimes there's uh, uh, predators and things in the area. And they will kind of check check it out ahead of time. And that's the way the Lord works in our lives, too. You know, he goes ahead of us, and he determines what our path should be. And in Proverbs, and if you don't have the Lord as your shepherd, that's a dangerous place to be. And the scripture talks about that in Proverbs 14:12. It says, there is a way or a path that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. That reminded me of a situation between Abraham and Lot. I don't know if you remember, but Abraham and Lot, were tra- and Lot were traveling together, and there was fighting that arose between their herdsmen together. And then they realized, you know, we got to separate. we got too many flocks. We're trying to fight over the same pasture land and everything, and this just isn't working out. So Abraham said, I'll tell you what, here we are. We're looking out over this area. You pick which way you want to go, Lot, and I'll take the other way. And then it says that Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar, was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot said, I'll take the good stuff. You can have the bad stuff, basically. You know. And so uh, Lot went towards Sodom. But we know what happened there. That was a horrible place. It had a nice cover. It was like a book with a pretty cover. But inside, all kinds of horror was there. And God judged that place not too far after this happened. As you know, Lot and his family escaped, except for his wife didn't. But uh, but that's a picture. We've got to have the Lord's discernment. He's, he should be guiding our path and going ahead. Because sometimes a way that we think, wow, this looks great, the Lord would say, no, it isn't. I know what's up there. You don't. And so to have him guiding our lives is very important. And many people choose to just use their eyes only and, and, and their feelings only in situations And Jesus spoke about that. He said in Matthew 7 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. Speaking of that gate, then Jesus told us what the gate is. In John 10 9, he said, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me he will be saved he'll come in and go out and find pasture so that speaks of the life going in that is that would be the ranch of 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 the shepherd and to go out is to go into the fields and then we'll talk a little bit about these other things called table lands so that's what jesus wants for us he wants this abundant life or he's our shepherd he takes us in and he guides us to the pastures in our lives that he wants us in that are safe you know and then it, it says, yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. In the wintertime, the shepherd would be at the ranch with the sheep. But then in the spring, they'd start to move out to, to a little ways away from the ranch. But then the, the final goal was the tablelands, the highlands, the mountain lands. There were really good feeding grounds. However, you had to go through the valleys. That's what's being talked about here, the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd's leading him through the valley of the shadow of death. And in these valleys in in the summer, you'd find rivers in flood stage. You'd find avalanches, rock slides, poison plants, predators, and storms. You'd also find shadows because there were rock walls oftentimes or high hills that would block the sun, so it would be a shadowy area, and you'd have all of these dangers that would be in that valley on the way to the high ground, which is really what the Lord wants to bring us to. He wants us to bring us to places of of soul prosperity in him. That's really what he wants to do. And sometimes the valleys, you know, we got to go through them. We've all had the valleys. We've all had the tough, tough times, the difficulties, the threats. I mean, right now, planet Earth is going through a valley with this COVID thing. Now, I think that I think there's an exaggeration going on where they're making it seem like the shadow of death is just everywhere, and you know, the shadow of death is here. And the shadow of death is close, but the shadow of death is always close. None of us knows when our last day is. The shadow of death is always there, if you think about it. But with this psalm, look what he said. He said, for thou art with me. Guess what? There's another shadow that is there, and that's the shadow of the shepherd, if you're with Jesus, yes, the shadow of death is there, but the shadow of life is there, too. We need to be looking at the shadow of life and not focusing on that shadow of death and getting afraid. You know, the, possibly the most, one of the most beautiful promises in the Bible is, is that, and it's in De- Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy thirty-one six. Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. We have a promise there that God will always be with us. And then in Psalm 91, the shadow of the Lord is spoken of. Psalm 91, 1 through 6: He who dwells in the shadow in the shadow of the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it's he who delivers you from the deadly snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You'll not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. If we want, we can be under the Lord's shadow. We can seek refuge under his shadow, and we can choose to look to his shadow instead of that shadow of death, which so many people focus on, even Christians, you know, focusing on the shadow of death and being afraid. You know, Fear not, for he is with you. If you're seeking him, if he's your shepherd, then he's with you. Then we come to your rod and your staff. They comfort me. The shepherd would have two instruments with him. He would have his rod and his staff. Now, the rod was a shorter uh, thing. And here it is here. It's also called a knob carry. And it kind of looks like a little golf club. It has that knot on the end of it. And this is also a scepter. This is where a scepter comes from. And it's an extension of your right arm or your strength. It represented strength, power, and authority. It was a weapon of protection. It was used by a shepherd to discipline and correct wayward sheep. It was also used for examining and counting the sheep. And, and as far as protecting, the, the sheep had a lot of predators. There's coyotes, wolves, cougars, dogs, even lions and bears. If you remember, uh, David said that he fought a lion and a bear and defeated them. That was probably while he was tending sheep. Well, what's really interesting is it, Jesus himself. Is called the scepter in the Old Testament. It says in Numbers 24 17, now this is the situation where there was a guy named Balaam, if you remember Balaam, he was basically a sorcerer, and the king of Moab, his name was Balak, hired, tried to hire him to come and curse Israel, their enemy, tried to curse them. Well, God changed Balaam's mouth, and he couldn't curse, all he could do was bless. And this is what he said. Now he's talking about the Messiah. He's prophesying hundreds and hundreds of years ahead. Actually, over a thousand. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush crush through the foreheads of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. So we're seeing the Messiah called the scepter. And then we talked about how the scepter represents strength, power, and authority. How, how much authority is this? Jesus has the scepter, too. He is the scepter. He has it. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, here it is again, I am with you always, even to the end of the age now this scepter here is actually part of the crown jewels of england i found that when i was looking around i thought wow that is incredible and this was made in 1611 but it's part of those crown jewels and that's a real diamond i believe and all kinds of different emeralds that are on there so makes you think of the true royal scepter jesus who who has that royalty now a staff was a slender walking stick and the Uh, A shepherd would use that for walking, but also for comforting the sheep, for kindness, guiding, help, and support of the sheep. And it had a crook on the end of it, kind of that J look to it. And uh, one of the things a shepherd would do is a mother sheep would oftentimes get separated from her newborn baby and if that shepherd would just take that baby and bring it over to the mother the scent of the fingers on that sheep in the hand would sometimes cause the mother to reject that and so he would use that hook and he would carry it over to the mom and set it down so it was a tool for this you know act of kindness there and then uh, sometimes you'd have shy sheep that were tough to get at and you know a, a shepherd wanted to work with them and, and help them and check them and he'd have to he'd hook them over with that hook and pull them over to himself and then uh, also if he was guiding the sheep he would sometimes push on the side of the sheep with with the staff to guide them onto the path that he was wanting them to go onto. so he used it for guiding also this guy said that what shepherds do sometimes is they take that staff and they'll be walking with the sheep and they'll just touch the side of the sheep while they're walking and it'll just be this connection point between the shepherd and the sheep and it's really comfortable for the sheep and the shepherd too just to know and feel that touch, you know, and that's that's what we need from the Lord too. We need to have that touch, that 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 uh, sense of His presence. It's just like the staff is just touching us, you know. And all this, uh, also for saving from drowning. Sometimes uh, a sheep to get too close to water. And it's a little bit of a cliffy uh, kind of edge. They'd fall in, and you could use that hook to lift the sheep out. Well, all this stuff that you do with the staff is similar to the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact. The comforting nature of a staff is the name of the Holy Spirit in John 14:26. But the comforter, even the Holy Spirit of the Father, will send in my name. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then as far as the guiding, the Holy Spirit, John 16:13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak and disclose to you what is to come. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies." Well, as far as sheep are concerned, a table is actually a type of land that they would be brought to. It's the highlands that they would, bring, they would go to in the summer. They're called tablelands. They're called applands, or mesas. Mesa means table in Spanish. And what would happen is the, the shepherd would actually go ahead again, and he would survey the tableland uh, they would uh, prepare the, the area for the sheep. They would clear water holes because they'd sometimes have water holes that were all full of gunk and everything. They'd clear those out. Sometimes they would there'd be a stream and the shepherd would make a dam so the water would build up and the sheep could uh, drink easier. Uh, they would uh, look for poisonous plants or predators and they would bring salt and minerals with them and lay them out so that the sheep, when they were feeding there, would also get those adequate amounts of salt and minerals. So... You'd see the the, the uh, shepherd would go and prepare the way ahead of them, and that's really what the Lord does for us as a shepherd. He prepares ahead of us our life and our path. If we're on His, if we're following Him, He's actually preparing ahead of our, our lives in time. He knows what's going to happen ahead of us, and in the in Scripture testifies to this. In Psalm 37:23, it says, "The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, and He delights in His way." So if you're walking with the Lord, your steps are walking the way God wants you to go into the future. Then Psalm 37, 24, it says, as says, though he may fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for Jehovah upholds his hand. And so there we are again. Even if in the future we have a casting down scenario, God is willing to be there to help you with his hand. This actually happened to Peter. Peter was cast down and restored. In Luke 22, 21 to 32, remember when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, so been restored, turn back, strengthen your brothers. So we know what happened to Peter. He denied the Lord three times. He became cast. But look what happened here. The Lord knew ahead of time. He said, I've already prayed for you into the future that you're going to be restored. The Lord is at the Father's right hand praying for us and interceding, the Bible says, right now for us in our lives. So he knows what's going to happen. And he's praying for us in these kind of things. He knows these troubles we're going to have. He's praying for us in the future. And as far as the Lord's leading, there's a beautiful passage in Isaiah 30:21. It says, Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So the shepherd would be in, in the lead sometimes of the sheep. Sometimes he'd be in the middle other times he would follow the sheep and direct them from there. And that's the metaphor that's happening here. Uh, the Lord is guiding his people. He's saying, there's coming a time again where you're going to hear my voice. I'm going to say, this is the way from behind you as your shepherd, go this way, go that way. You know, this is talking about having a table prepared before us in the presence of our enemies in the presence of the difficulties, troubles, and difficulties things in our life that are hard. And we can see it metaphorically portrayed with Peter walking on the water, this scenario here. Matthew 14, 25 through 32 says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed onto the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So we can see that Peter had his eyes on Jesus, you know, and again, he basically turned and looked at the shadow of death and went, ah, you know, I'm, I'm afraid, no. And then the Lord saved him, you know. But, but we can, and I struggle with this too. I'm not saying I've arrived at this. I mean, I struggle with this too. But we can, if we keep our eyes focused on the Lord, we can walk on the water, as it were, with him, even in the midst of all that trouble and turmoil going on. Isaiah 26.3 says this verse, and you're, all or most are familiar with this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So it's, it's simple, you know, it really is. You have to keep your eyes on the Lord. And this, how does that happen? You know, it happens through prayer. It happens through reading scripture. It, happens, it does happen through attending church. It happens through your commitment and your service to the Lord. All those things have to do with the zeal and keeping your eyes on Jesus and not getting off track. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Well, in that tableland, it was a great feeding. It was the best feeding. But there was one super bad problem, and that was the bugs. Because in the summer, they would all be hatched, and they would harass the sheep he I don't even want to get into some of the things he talked about with the sheep and how bad it was but but a good shepherd would make a basically a bug repellent ointment and put that on the heads of the sheep and in ancient times they would use uh, Olive oil, sulfur, and spices, and then they would put it over the head of the sheep, and it would provide this relief. And this particular shepherd says you would immediately just see the tenseness in the sheep just go down. It would just immediately provide this relief. And I know you all, in living in Minnesota, we know what what mosquitoes can be like. I mean, you're outside and you're slapping and you're stressed. You get inside, and there's immediate relief. You know, and uh, sometimes bug sprays work, but. There's all different flies and parasites and stuff that are in those tablelands, and they have to have that. And you know, we have to have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Otherwise, all these irritations in life, whether it's things relationally or things with our job or driving or whatever it may be, all of the, of the stresses and, and the, uh, uh, the bad things that just irritate and bug us, that can be reduced by the ointment and the oil of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Galatians 5.22, we know this verse well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then it's interesting because in Ephesians 5.18, it tells us, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But really, if you look at the, uh, the Greek construction of that area, it really... Probably would be better worded, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. And if you look at it like we're containers with holes and the Spirit is water, you get filled up and then you drain. And if you're drained and you're running into these situations, I know for me, if I've had a really good quiet time in the morning throughout the whole day, there's just this tolerance that I have that's, oh, you know what? That's not that big a deal, you know. And, and I just have this thicker skin, so to speak, and, and this bug spray, this ointment that's been, been on me. And then there's something really, really fascinating in this part of the psalm. You've anointed my head with oil. It has to do with sheep, but also anointing the head with oil was actually something that would happen if you were being invited into somebody's house. In the Jewish culture, if you were brought into somebody's home for hospitality, they would traditionally anoint your head with oil. It was part of the welcoming that you would receive. And that is what he's referring to here. And he's talking about being brought into the Lord's house, into his presence, into the fellowship with the Lord. And we can see in the new testament jesus alludes to this practice of anointing your head as you're going into somebody's house when he's the woman who uh, uh well i'll just read it luke seven forty-four to 46 says turning toward the woman he said to simon do you see this woman i entered your house you gave me no water for my feet but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss but since the time i came in she's not ceased to kiss my feet you did not anoint my head with oil but she anointed my feet with perfume." So the Lord is saying, uh, you see the relationship here. You see that David is being invited into the Lord's house. And then his cup overflows. What does that have to do with? That has to do with the abundance, the, the, uh, the uh, parasis that we talked about, the abundance that Jesus talked about, the overflow of the life that we can have in Christ. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's feasting in the Lord's house is really what it's doing. And we can do that. We can feast in him now. It's not just going to be later. We can do that now. And the cup, if you see the cups overflowing, that cup is also speaking of covenant. It's, remember when Jesus said in in Luke 22, 20, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup which is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. So it's The covenant relationship is here too, inviting into the house for covenant relationship, for abundance and overflow and feasting in the Lord's house. Ephesians talks about this too. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says, "'In him we have redemption through his blood, "'the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, "'according to the riches of his grace, "'which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight.'" Here's the pouring out, the overflowing of that cup to us through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and it's it's the same word It's paris it's a slightly different modification of a pariseo to be in excess to superabound abundant that's what that lavished word means there and then the thing i was seeing more and more is that's really what this is all about you know if you boil down the bible we can have all kinds of different you know, understandings of what history did and the wars that took place and all this stuff. But when you boil down everything, I mean, really what this is all about is a relationship with the creator. And that is really what it is. And Jesus talked about coming into his house in John 14:23. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to them and make our home with them. That's for us. He'll come and make his home with us. And in Revelation 3.20, he said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. What's happening to David? He's going in the Lord's house, the Lord's inviting him in, he's got the cup symbolizing all the feasting that he's doing, and he's invited him in, he's come in. God talks about the New Testament, the New Covenant Uh, in various places in in the Old Testament. And one of the spots is in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. And look the way God describes it. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. All you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David." To know God is to feast. If, and, and, we, and, and as we know, I too, I want, I want to walk deeper. You know, in this whole study and everything, I've had the desire, you know, the Lord's worked on me uh, and, and made me say, you know, Lord, I want you more. I want more of you, Lord. I want to feast with you more. You know? and, uh, and then Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus declared in Matthew, in John 6:35, John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go thirsty. Whoever believes in me will never, uh, will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we see Jesus describing himself as bread, as meat, as drink, all these things because to have fellowship with God is to feast in our souls. It's to have that peace and that shalom, that abundant life that scripture speaks of. And it's interesting because Jesus did like the heavenly dictionary definition of eternal life. If there's a heavenly dictionary and you open it up, Jesus was like reading out of that. And this is what he said. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He boiled it down for us. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity. We have eternity now you're born again you have eternity now and it starts now but it's going to carry on knowing god through all of eternity relationship all this eating and everything is actually going to culminate in a supper i think most of us have probably heard about the wedding supper of the lamb and that's coming and jesus said to us says to us in Luke 12, 35 to 40, he says, be dressed and ready for service and keep, keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master, whose master finds them watching when he comes. Now, this is amazing. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, meaning Jesus himself, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants who the master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus is talking about his coming. I I believe he's alluding to the rapture here. It's a secret coming where people are ready, not because of all these threats and, and things like that, but because they love him. And then he's going to take, take us. But the thing he says here, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Jesus is going to be a waiter for us at this feast, at least for a time. And I had the thought, I thought, you know, I could just see Jesus going around. If he's the one that pours drinks at that feast, I bet you he's gonna go and he's gonna pour until they overflow. He'll come to your seat, he'll pour and it'll overflow, you know. Everybody's cups overflowing and it'll just be totally fitting for, for what he said and what he is, you know. Everybody will be laughing and giggling at, you know, wow, that is so cool, you know. Surely good, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this book, I learned that when sheep are properly shepherded and they go graze on a land for the proper amount of time and in the proper way, when they leave that area, they've eaten up a lot of the weeds, they've fertilized it, and then that land becomes just beautiful after they, they've left. If it's a bad shepherd, they'll wreck the land. Sheep are terrible for absolutely wrecking uh, pastures if they're not shepherded well and they overfeed and stuff. But what I thought about is that when he said, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Remember, we talked about how the sheep sometimes follow behind, you know, and they guide the shepherd. And what he's saying is he's saying the Lord himself is goodness and love. That's what he's saying. And scripture says, God is love. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So you just, you, I just picture David just sitting back with his eyes closed, like saying the psalm. He's just so satisfied. He's like, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. God himself, the shepherd, goodness and love. And then through God's influences in David, he will also leave a, leg- a legacy of goodness and love. And we can, too. Forever, remember? I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus said that if we overcome, we will be in his house forever too. In Revelation 3, 11, 12, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So what he's saying is you're going to be a permanent fixture like a pillar is in a building in god's house if you overcome and and that has to do too with we christ helps us overcome and we can overcome in this life and live an overcoming life and i you know i'm not saying i've arrived i i want to do that too you know this gives me incentive to try harder you know but then there's this last picture i'll leave you with here with Revelation 7:13 7, through 17 again this water you know that uh, that we're going to we're going to see and the fact that this is all going to carry into eternity then one of the elders answered to me saying these who are clothed in white robes who are they where have they come from i said to him my lord you know he said to me these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So I guess as as I conclude here, you know, I I don't know anybody's situation here or anybody viewing online, but if you feel like you're cast down at all, you know, the Lord can lift you back up. You know, I did to some extent. As I was starting this, I was like, you know what? I have been. I've had some things going on in my heart with the condition of the world, some things that I was hoping for, with with the course of our nation and things like that, and I I was heartbroken uh, personally over some of the things I've seen, and I felt like, you know, I was like, Lord, what happened? You, you know, you didn't answer our prayers, you know, and I was I was, I was hurting, but through this whole study and everything, I feel like the Lord is, you know, He's kind of uh, helped me, you know. Yeah, I wasn't utterly cast down, but I mean, I was, I was having some troubles and stuff, and I felt like, wow, the Lord, you, you, you help me. So he can do the same thing for you, and it involves maybe you should talk to a fellow believer if you feel any of this in, in your heart, and you can pray for one another, and, uh, or I'll pray for you, or whatever, and, and uh, help you get lifted back up. But we can have peace, we can have joy, we can have comfort, and uh, this psalm certainly speaks of this. So why don't we uh, have the worship team come up and do the last song.